Welcome to the Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing Series. I'm Tom Gilligan, Director of the Hoover Institution. For more than a century, the Hoover Institution and world-renowned library and archives have been collecting knowledge and generating ideas that support the pursuit of freedom and endeavor to improve the human condition. We've been able to occupy an, an eminent place in the think tank landscape by maintaining a focus on scholarly and empirical research that asks bold questions, offers powerful solutions for policymakers, and advances ideas to improve people's lives. These briefings are just one of the many ways we're able to reach out and share some of the important work coming out of the institution. Thank you for joining us today. As a reminder, we will be taking audience questions and I encourage you to submit yours using the Q&A button located at the bottom of your screen. Today's discussion is with Shelby Steele on race and America. Shelby is the Robert J. and Mary Mee Oster Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. He has been writing and talking about race in America for decades. Shelby was awarded the Bradley Prize and the National Humanities Medal. He is the author of a book entitled Shame, How America's Past Sins Have Polarized Our Country. His work on the document, documentary Seven Days in Bensonhurst was recognized by, by an Emmy Award and he is finishing a documentary called what Killed Michael Brown? Shelby, welcome and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Shelby, there, there are a number of issues I wanna ask you about, uh, but can you start by helping us to put the current civil unrest in perspective? I, I know that you and I throughout our lifetimes have witnessed, ra witnessed racial tensions around the Civil Rights Act, around the Anti-War Act, et cetera. Uh, how are the current protests different and similar than the past? How can we put them in historical perspective? Well, I think they're, uh, I, I was very much involved. I come from a civil rights family. And so I was, I grew up sort of in that movement. Um, and several things strike me about the, the difference then and, and, and now. Um, one of which is, I think, if I had to put it in one theme, it is that the, the protests today seem to me to be in their heart a kind of mimicry of past protests. Uh, they don't have issues with the, uh, with the kind of gravity that uh, we had back in the 50s and the 60s when we were building up momentum toward the Civil Rights Bill of 1964 and so forth, when uh, the Vietnam War uh, expanded and, and the youth rebelled and there was a women's movement and, there were profound uh, social movements that, that um, so the protest was always attached to historical change, to, to uh, self-examination. These today seem to me to be, have, have no such connection. I, they, they don't do a very good job of saying what they really want even. Um, they, they, they sort of are quick to go to violence. We were not so quick back in those days, but today they are quick to go to violence, but, but again, don't do a very good job of, of explicating for society what it is that they really want, what sort of social changes they, they really want, what would they look like. They don't convince us of anything. Mm -hmm. uh, because I think, again, they're, they're more about adolescent rebellion than they are about American society. That's one thing that 
that, that strikes me as, uh, as difference. The focus on race is another. Uh, again, I grew up in the Civil Rights Movement, Martin Luther King and James Farmer, and knew, actually knew some of these people. And they were assiduous, nonviolent, um, Gandhi-esque sort of figures. They, they were, their protest was about a moral witness. Uh, and they, they wore suits and ties. The, the ladies dressed for church. They, they marched with dignity. Um, there, was, there was no, again, if you were any hint of even being rude, that you were kicked out of the march. Um, there, dignity was the, the, the framework. You, you let them drag you out, but you yourself never, you never submitted. You, you, it constituted, again, a, a, a moral witness that was moving and finally was profoundly effective, changed the way America thinks about race. Um, again, these, the movements today seem to have none of that. America has changed. We're not the racist, segregated society we were back then. Uh, minority students have every kind of opportunity uh, in, in a, to do to flourish in American life. Uh, and so they're in a sense, you almost feel sorry for them. They, they want a cause, but, but they can't really find one. Hmm. Shelby, I mean, there, there seems to be a lot of tension and divide, though, out there in the world, both politically and on the streets. Help us better understand the issue or the issues that divide our country now along racial, ethnic, uh, gender lines, identity lines, et cetera. Well, I think, you know, there are always the old standbys. Uh, uh, race is, is always probably the biggest, the deepest one uh, that, that we divide up over. Um, there is, I think, a symbiotic black-white connection. Uh, we both sort of need each other. Um, whites need blacks in order they think to, or, or certainly liberalism, white liberalism needs blacks uh, in order to have groups to redeem, to lift up, and thereby establish their innocence of racism. Uh, for, for white liberals, it, 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 the passion is to achieve innocence, uh, to, to be beyond that charge of, of racism and evil. Uh, and, and so I think they, in a sense, I know, they exploit, they use blacks. Uh, and by keep seeing them as victims, blacks, on the other hand, have come to learn the only way they can really get attention from American society is by being victims. And so victimization is the center of the black identity today. And if you're not, if you don't concede that, concede that you're a victim, you're not a real black, you're an Uncle Tom. It's all, everything is, is victimization. Uh, universes, here, here you have often well-to-do blacks private school backgrounds, uh, going to college and suddenly becoming enamored of the, of the far left ideology of uh, almost Marxist in many cases, in many cases, uh, to try to find that, that authenticity that comes from protest. And, uh, 
So the protest probably in that sense is more about, uh, is more important as a means for uh, distinguishing, for carrying off an adolescent rebellion than about anything going on in society. When you ask the, today these, what, the, what causes they, they'll come up belatedly after the violence has already occurred, they come, well, what we really want is to defund the police. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that answer to me, you, you're just dignifying the fact that you don't even know what you want. Mm-hmm. You just pull that out of the hat. And, and uh, we're all supposed to debate that now and have a crime bill and push the police back and so forth. Uh, well, why? What's yeah. the real problem? Uh, there isn't one. Shelby, uh, Lucy asked the following question. Do you think if there were an MLK-type leader that the current protests would be more like the 60s? I think that there was a, a, in the 60s, there was a perfect match between the cause and the leader. The cause was a great historical cause, going back hundreds of years to slavery, segregation, Jim Crow South, all finally in the 50s, 60s, culminating uh, in this profound moral, it was a human moral statement that we want to move beyond race and identity as, as a means to power. We want to we be God's children again in that sense. Um, what well, was a great movement, the people who, who, were, who carried it off, Again, I, I still look at, the, at them with great reverence. Um, they met that moral challenge, and they did it, again, with, with silent witness. Um, so that <clears throat> I saw men protesters in, those, in those, those days. I remember my own father integrating a, church, a, a park in close to downtown Chicago, and they had their signs and they, and they stood there in moral witness. They were going to just simply have a family picnic. And a white man came up and hit him in the jaw. Um, he, he didn't move. Uh, he, he looked the man in the eye. Uh, excuse me. <laughs> uh, didn't think I remember it that vividly, <laughs> uh, but um, the man gave up. Hmm. So he was apologized, um, was mortified really at what he had done. Huh. Um, well, I don't think the protesters today. Uh, I don't think they 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 can do that. I don't think either. I don't think. Does the whites want to run up and hit blacks? I don't think blacks want to need to make that kind of moral witness today. It's a different ball game. The, the tragedy is that the youth of today are pretending, pretending that they're still under, that every white person out there is like this guy who hit my father. Hmm. They're pretending that because then they've got a, they've got a noble war to engage. It brings out their character and lets them know themselves and so forth. They're looking for a challenge. Hmm. They're not going to find it. The society is not a perfect society, but I can tell you it's a different one and a lot better one than when I was growing up. 
Yeah. Uh, and so this generation is going to have to find authentic problems. There are plenty of them. Black community is riddled with them. Yeah. Shelby, let me ask you that question. What, what do you think are the most significant challenges that African-Americans face right now? I think overwhelmingly, I mean, there's no comparison. The number one challenge is the absolute collapse of the black family, period. Uh, you just have generations now of children born with no family structure, with no father. Uh, and you say what you want. We, we are now absolute proof of the importance of fathers in the home. Um, you, you, you need a mother and you need a father. And when you don't have those things, it's difficult to compensate and it puts you automatically, it handicaps you in the human competition of American life. You, you, you almost have no right to, to do that to somebody who to, to bring children in the world when you cannot, you're not yet able to, to raise them in, a, uh, in the right way. Well, there's no magic, no tricks involved in that. There's nothing, nothing special, no great insights one needs to have. It's, it's the, the ordinary, the ordinariness of life that, that we need to get in touch with. Again, it doesn't have the glamor of standing with Martin Luther King, mm -hmm. but it has more meaning really. Mm -hmm. This is where you, you build characters, where the race dignifies itself. Um, my favorite quote is from Ralph Ellison that uh, the race, uh, what is it? Uh, the, the race is the gift of its individuals. Uh, individuals take responsibility for becoming decent people, law-abiding, hardworking, so forth. You do it, I do it, the next person does it, and you look up one day and the race is great. Mm -hmm. The race is, is, is infallible. The race is strong. Uh, we don't do that. We don't, we don't we, without, without the family, you can't do that. So that if, if we don't, if we as black Americans do not address this problem, there's no hope. Mm -hmm. If you're just joining us, I'm Tom Gilligan, and this is the Hoover Institution's virtual policy briefing with Shelby Still. Shelby, you know, um, the, the leaders of the current protests have, have proposed several specific solutions to address problems that they see in race relations in America. The first is uh, talking about police reform and kind of an extreme form of that, which is defunding the police. What is your reaction to ideas of uh, defunding Police departments. Again, I think it's a um, um, diversion from the real problems that black blacks face, which is not police. <laughs> uh, most most blacks in most communities want more police, more policing. Those neighborhoods have higher crime rates, so forth and so on. Uh, everybody knows that. And so uh, the idea that every black who's incarcerated is a victim of some race, systemic racism is ridiculous. Uh, we, we're at a point, when you get to the point where you can't call crime, crime, then, 
then really all is lost. Uh, no, we need, we need strong, well-trained, well-disciplined, professional policemen. We need them probably more than any other community in America needs them. Uh, we ought to be protesting for more of them so that the, the hardworking, decent people in those communities can get up in the morning and go to work and come home in safety. Mm -hmm. and can raise their children in safety. Mm -hmm. uh, without them, like in Chicago this past weekend, how many children are shot dead? Mm -hmm. uh, and you're going to tell me the problem is, is, is policing? Yeah. Well, this is what happens because of this, again, the symbiotic connection, blacks and whites. We, we make you feel guilty. You, you will give us, you dole out a little, few little peanuts to us and we just keep going back and forth and we think that's real meaningful race relations. Yeah. Steve, Steve, uh, Shelby, let me push back on that. Steve asked the following question and I'll ask you to dig into this policing issue a little bit more. He says, I see unequal policing and police brutality as major themes in the most recent protest. Is, isn't there any validity to those complaints? If so, do you see a better means for addressing it? Not quite sure what he means by it, but but um, probably unequal uh, policing or police brutality. Yeah. Okay. Um, that issue did not even come up until the protest had gone on for two or three days, mm -hmm. before violence had broken out everywhere. Then all of a sudden, as if to sort of cover their bases, they said, "Well, what can, what issue can we put out here to legitimize ourselves?" Mm -hmm. And they come up with the, the whole thing of policing. The reality is that that uh, police are again working on this documentary with on on Michael Brown. Spent a lot of time uh, with police. They're some of the, the most decent people I've I've ever met. Um, on the other hand, there is no doubt whatsoever that there are bad apples. There are bad policemen. That's a I hate to say it because it's such a cliche. There are. And police departments need to do a better job of combing out those people. Really, that, that because they can now see as policemen the kind of difficulty that does to their reputation. So I, I, uh, I'm, I'm happy to see us have better policing in the, in the United States of America. But I can tell you that's a thousand miles away from what we really need, uh, the problems that we really have, and the, the low education levels, the breakdown of family, these problems that can't be solved with a little piece of, of legislation. The problems we have are much more profound than that. And we can't, we've got to stop coming up with these diversionary problems that yeah. waste our time. Yeah. Shelby Marvin asked a question about the iconoclasm that we've seen recently. He says, across the nation and the globe, communities are reassessing historical figures such as Presidents Wilson and Jefferson and we are seeing sports teams being renamed, uh, for instance. Where do we draw the line? And are these gestures purely symbolic or are these positive steps towards tangible progress? Do we need to revise our history entirely in that case? The reason that these things are happening is because minorities know and believe and have been have been conditioned to, to see themselves as victims. And so they, when they want 
they relate to the larger society as victims and you sort of they're sort of keeping the pot boiling uh, uh well I'll, I'll spend time and make sure the nfl that they all kneel or you know i mean th these sorts of of symbolic things that mean virtually mean really nothing uh but but again give young people the uh, the illusion that they're really doing something um you know my, my feeling is again that the real problem here is the fact the deepest problem here is the fact that white americans have lost their moral confidence hmm. and will not stand up for obvious common sense things obviously kneeling or not kneeling at an nfl football game is not relevant to much of anything let mm -hmm. alone the sort of problems that exist in the black community today yeah but yet the owners will kowtow to these silly demands and will make heroes out of these these you know fighting the sort of what i call nothing warfare over uh, warfare over absolutely nothing of any significance and the, well, the problems go on the marriage rates stay terrible uh the children are born in, out of wedlock uh schools are in complete collapse at this point um public housing is pathetic is is a, a hotbed of crime uh <laughs> We go on all day, the, the, the problems here that, that again, um, there is nothing to be gained from any of these little silly debates, except the knowledge that they're silly. Hmm. Make, don't make silly something else. Mm -hmm. This is silly. Mm -hmm. Now it's once we can accept that, we can again move closer to what the real problems might be and actually make some some sort of progress mm -hmm. but the important we need a society with the moral confidence to say this is silly okay you don't like silly it's stupid mm -hmm. it really is there's no way you can we can talk all day long there's no way to make this meaningful and yet the left uh, and, and minorities have done a, a great job of preoccupying and media picks it up, runs these little silly stories about these little silly events that have no relationship to anybody or to anything. Yeah. You, I, I think I know the answer to this question. Shelby, do you feel the same way about reparations, which have been called for and there are several plans to uh, put that in the works? Yeah. Uh, well, again, we'll fight and argue over reparations. Uh, because we don't want to deal with the real problems uh, is a reparation is going to mean that that fourth year old uh, black kid is going to be able to read you can't read by the fourth grade you're the odds are pretty much against you mm -hmm. is he going to be is 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 is, is going to have an impact on that um do do, do i mean all, all the questions are obvious do whites today owe me something because of what they whites in the past did uh do i owe them something i mean what what can, we can't make history we can't wipe away history 
with yeah. with the, you can have all the reparations you want. History will still be looking, sitting there looking at you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, it's it's silly. I always say that I, if they have re reparations, I won't take any. Hmm. My grandfather was born a slave. Uh, I'm the grandson, literally, of a slave. Um, I will not take any reparations. I like money as well as the next person, but I won't take any. Uh, it's you. You can't. You can't buy innocence, mm -hmm. and uh, I can't sell innocence. Mm -hmm. We have to live today in today's world and stand up to it. It's that's difficult enough. Yeah. Lawrence asks, he's, he's, he's interested in your opinion about the Black Lives Matter manifesto or just the ideals that underlie that political movement. That, again, it, it's, um, I, I think it's a movement that mimics, the, that has no authentic um, mission in today's world uh, and therefore mimics an earlier era in the 60s, which was full of uh, great turmoil and so forth. But the issues were, in fact, women did need a movement to, to move ahead. Blacks certainly did need one. Uh, the Vietnam War did not pan out. It, it was a travesty in many ways. Mm -hmm. uh, these were real movements. Mm -hmm. Today, yeah. that's... Uh, it's, 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 it's not there. And so, I, I, again, I look at Black Lives Matter and you, and you just sort of feel for them because they want so badly to have the glamour of protest, so badly to be seen in the, in the way that Blacks were seen in the, in the days of, 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 you know, the Black Panthers with their big with, with weapons and all. They want that, that vision of Black militancy. Mm-hmm. They think that is where the, the, the real action is. And of course, it's a diversion. They, they, to go down that road is to be lost. And I, I, I hate to see our black youth be lost. Mm -hmm. you, got a, you got a real difficult job here to make a life. You don't have time for this. Yeah, yeah. Shelby, I mean, uh, I guess the alternative to the white guilt uh, payoff symbiosis that goes on now is a conservative notion that weighs individual responsibility and individualism. Do you see that latter uh, prescription uh, getting hold in the Af African American community or getting getting a toehold in the American political movement that is trying to address race problems in America? I'm not sure I understand the first part. Well, so just uh, the, your, your ideas would be considered to be, you, you for the longest time have been a voice in the wilderness about what the true problem is for African-Americans and the uh -huh. way ameliorated. Do you see, uh, do you see growing uh, growth in the ranks of people like you who see an entirely different way to solve these problems? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Um, you, there, there, are, there is a black conservative movement. Um, and one of the things that interests me about it is that it is uh, basically at this point, it's the young who, who are, um, who I think recognize the fact that, that America, I think they're recognizing the fact that, that 
there is real possibility and opportunity in American life today if you're black. You can, you, you, it's not like when I came along where it was very rare for a black to go to college. Um, today, you, uh, it's, it's not noticeable. And so I think that, you know, again, things have, things have changed and, um, well, I think that, I think it's, it, the opportunities are, are so uh, prolific in American life today that that alone brings many blacks into the conservative fold because they want to they want to be successful they're really americans and we we forget this when we focus so much on race they're americans they want the same values all americans want they want to do well in life uh and they want an america that's open to them and and boy is it uh it's it's wide open um uh to them, so that the real real problem we have is, what do you do when you win? Yeah, we've won. <laughs> uh, Bird asked the following question. He says, uh, and this has to do with policy and politics. Uh, he says, African American voters vote overwhelmingly uh, Democrat. What advice would you give the Republican Party to attract African American voters? That's a very, very good question, and, and uh, I have thought about that, uh, continue to think about that a lot. Um, I, I think conser conservatism, Republicans, so forth, have not, for the most part, done a good job of, of speaking. I think that that the the truth about politics and life, for that matter, is that what people want when you're asking for their vote or you're asking for something, they want witness. Do you know who I really am? Do you know what my background, what, what I've said, my family, my group has suffered? To me, one of the, the great things that, that, that why Republicans have an advantage here is because, because they can, uh, because black, uh, America has moved so far uh and and black americans have come have come so far uh and it's not difficult at this point to acknowledge what their suffering was don't take suffering away from a group that suffered for four centuries acknowledge it honor this this the the talent for survival that blacks have shown what other group in human history have survived Ooh, what we've been through. Mm -hmm. Look at it that way. That's where a Republican can start speaking to minorities from that point of view. Mm -hmm. Because you've given witness, you've flattered, you've acknowledged, you've shown that you understand who they are, what they, that yeah, they had more suffering than anybody else. Mm -hmm. And they were put through it as Americans, put through a test that nobody else was put through. Mm -hmm. And for that, they have earned a kind of greatness. And you lead as a Republican speaking somewhere in a black community with that idea of greatness. Mm -hmm. I'm talking to great people. Yeah. I'm not talking to just a bunch of crybaby losers. I'm talking to, to people who have a truly achieved in this world greatness. 
transformed mm -hmm. the moral character of Western civilization. Mm -hmm. Have taken the idea of freedom past the idea of race. Black Americans, well, now I'm ready to hear you. Yeah. Shelby, I know that you inter interact some with uh, Senator Scott. Uh, he seems to be a very new and powerful voice for these issues uh, in America now. What, what are your impressions about him and could he rise up and provide the kind of moral leadership that you think is necessary to address the true problem, problems in the African-American community? Oh yes, I, I think uh, I think Senator Scott has the juice, as, as they say. He's uh, he's the right man at the right time uh, to, and has already uh, you know articulated many of these many of these things. This again, a focus on the individual and the the the, the array of possibilities and opportunities available. Uh, to, to blacks today. And, and if once has found ways to have the government be supportive of that without taking it over, without, without saying that taking over the, the, the mission of blacks to overcome their, their oppression. Um, he's, he's, he's wonderful. But again, he, he should not be related to as a novelty. Mm -hmm. Oh, a black conservative, the mm -hmm. novelty. We dismiss novelties. Mm -hmm. He's not a novelty. He's an American voice, and uh, he he uh, has to be seen that way. And he's done a wonderful job of carrying himself that way, so that whites can be honored in, in by him, uh, in association with him, mm -hmm. uh, as Americans. The the focus on the American is the is everything. So I I I, I hope that he begins to demarcate this territory that he's, he represents so, uh, so well. I'm a, I'm a big fan. Mm -hmm. um, well, let me ask you more generally about the political parties in our country. What do you think about the way that Democrats and Republicans are handling the issues of discussions around racial relations in America? Uh, well, not very well. <laughs> um, when you look at what the real problems are, it's it's painful. No one, no one. We are so afraid of each other. We're so afraid of stigmatizing each other that we almost we we sort of have an unspoken agreement never to tell the truth. Uh, I have a couple. Let me ask a couple questions from the audience, and these are kind of orthogonal to what we're talking about. The sixteen nineteen project. Uh, Robert asks, what, what do you think about the 1619 project? And to the extent you think anything about it, Shelby, tell us what it is. And Tricia asks, how can the 1619 project, which is now being injected forcibly into public school curricula, be countered? What is the project and, and do you have an opinion about it, Shelby? Uh, it's a project that started by the New York Times uh, this past year, um, uh, which attempt to sort of rewrite the curriculum for public schools, um, basing American history in 1619, saying when the first slaves came over that that uh, that was the moment of birth that America was born in slavery and has been committed to the subjugation of and victimization of blacks and minorities ever since. 
And the idea is to then is to re revise our teaching of American history so that it conforms to this notion of white oppression and black victimization. Um, and so it's clearly a nakedly politicized version of American history that the left is espousing in the interest of expanding the whole left in America is expanding the power to be, be taken from victimization. Everybody's a victim in the, in the left vision of things. And therefore power is due the government to take over those problems and straighten them all out. So it's, a, it's, a, it's just an old uh, trick that the left uses, uh, exploits blacks, Blacks are always exploited as the ultimate victims. Uh, uh, and so we start with slavery. And, and uh, uh, again, Blacks are the, the justified transforming the American curriculum in, in this particular way. So it's a power move, period. Just, just uh, pure and simple. Uh, it's been disputed countless times. The Woodson Center in Washington, D.C. is has, has uh, taken on the sort of the formal uh, 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 combating this, this whole notion. They have what's called the 1776 uh, agenda, which is, which is, again, designed to reverse 1619. But it's, it's a, again, a, a, a corruption. It's, it, uh, it's not accurate, it is, it's false history. Mm -hmm. um, there were obviously blacks were victimized in America, but the picture is a lot more compromised than that. It was America also that constantly, from its very beginnings, resisted slavery. Mm -hmm. It was America that a lot of the thinking and the ideas that ultimately ended slavery were created and put into play. No, no society has fought racism more thoroughly, more relentlessly than America. That might be a good way to set up your your uh, curriculum of American history, but I'm not I'm not waiting on that. <laughs> Shelby, let's just end by having you comment on what role our political leaders could play in advancing discussions about race relations. So, if if you could write a speech for President Trump or one for Joe Biden, should he become president, or maybe even ex-President Obama, what would you like him to say that you think could advance? The dialogue and make help us make progress with these problems. I would, you know, I think the the we got in the '60s, we got into the habit of seeing all our social problems as problems of identity and groups. I think it's time for presidents to move away from that and move toward the idea of the individual. Uh, and individual freedom and individual responsibility, which is real power. Uh, individuals can activate things. They make things happen. They turn the world. Uh, groups are always after the fact of the individual. They're the result of it. And, 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 but it's the individuals who, who are out there today, right now, uh, finding themselves, developing, evolving, be making contributions to, to life and so forth, who are giving us tomorrow. Well, we need a focus on individuals uh, and citizens. 
Citizenship is a wonderful idea because it acknowledges both at the same time, fealty to, to one's government, one's state, but also to oneself. Mm -hmm. uh, and so citizenship, citizenship comes with responsibilities uh, and, and it has its rewards, but it has its responsibilities. Identity doesn't come up with anything, mm -hmm. but, but citizenship does. So I, again, it's just as a, a quick answer to that question, I would, I would definitely uh, uh, hope for uh, Obama had that chance, but he stayed in the collective realm. I think Trump has not known what to do uh, for the most part, but, but certainly uh, could if he, if, he, if he chose, made up his mind. And you know that the individual is what he is. He is himself an individualist, if, if there ever was one. Mm -hmm. uh, and we need individualism. And um, um, our mutual support comes out of that. Great. Shelby, we reached the end of our time. Thanks so much for this important discussion. Thanks so much for having me. Great. Our next Hoover virtual policy briefing will be Tuesday, July 14th at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern with Bjorn Lomborg for a discussion on his latest book entitled False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Australians, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. In fact, the book will be released next Tuesday, so we are fortunate to be among the first to talk to him about it. Name one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World, Bjorn is a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution and president of the Copenhagen Consensus Center. The New York Times best-selling skeptical environmentalist argues that panic over climate change is causing more harm than good. We also have a series called Hoover Capital Conversations that brings together Hoover fellows and policymakers for informed discussions between those who generate ideas and those who turn them into actionable policy. Our next conversation is with Senator Marco Rubio and Hoover's own Lon Hee Chin on July 22nd at 1.30 p.m. Pacific and 4.30 Eastern Time. You can sign up at hoover.org forward slash capital conversations to sign in to that briefing. Again, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Thank you again for your support and I hope to see you next time. Goodbye.